This is part two, episode six. Enjoy. What else did you do in in those four years of your undergraduate? So, I was a part of international fees team. That means、uh, we had like four students working for the international department, so that the new international students coming from all over the world they would have guidance. So, if they wanted、uh, to know about the medical doctors, we would guide them. So, if they wanted.、Uh, Uh, take classes or talk to advisor, then would guide them. So we do food from around the world, festival from different corners. We do Nepal night, we do China night, we do Nigeria night, just to、uh, educate people. Other thing I did, I was a tutor as well. <laughs> At that time, I was just taking any jobs that I could make money. So I was tutoring maths, science mostly, and I was also working at the cafeteria as a dishwasher. <laughs> oh wow. And the first, I started two weeks into my school,、mm-hmm. and first time it was really hard because you know back in back home you don't do anything, you know, you don't even wash a cup of、uh, a cup, you know, by yourself. So it was really awkward. I, you know, I was eighteen years old. I felt a little ashamed too. But then when I got my first paycheck, that's the first time I made money in my entire life, and I、uh, got. I still remember I got hundred sixty dollars as a、um, check. I went to the business office and converted it to cash. I sent fifty dollars to my mom, fifty dollars to my grandfather, and fifty dollars to a girl that I was dating then. I was so naive, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, but you know, we do stupid things when we're young. Definitely. But you know, that was the first time I made that、uh, much money,、wow. and, and I think I think that's the first time in life that I realized that you know, if you work, you can see the fruit. But when I got the money, it's like it was all worth it. So to all the young kids, if you think you're working hard, don't think about that because when the fruit comes to your hand, that struggle seems worth it. You know, you can. So that was、um, that's something I did.、Uh, I also did、um, ambassador, which means、um, when you have prospective students come to take tour of the college, you take them around. Are、uh, you familiar with the term RA? So that's like a residential advisor. So I did that too. That means like I was a police, and I was in charge of an entire floor, and they would pay me eighteen hundred US dollars and free room and board. So that eighteen hundred would go to my tuition, and I had free rooms. But that means I had no life because I have to be there all the time. So if a student has a roommate issue, they would come to me. If they are missing home, they would come to me. If someone is someone stole their stuff, they'd come to me. And if someone is making noise past ten p.m., they would come to me. So I was basically a police. So you said you you got involved in few other projects. Yep.、Uh, so、uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I think it was in two thousand eleven. There was a big big earthquake in Haiti. So、uh, my friend started a project, clean drinking water for everyone. And、uh, what we wanted to do was basically give access to clean water to those—I、um, um, don't want to say the word victims, but those who were suffering or who suffered because of the earthquake because they didn't have clean water. So we raised money, sent、um, some water purifiers to Haiti,、um, but it was successful. So we started doing that project in、uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Nepal,、um, Mali. So a few African countries where they really need water. So on our second year, I took a leadership of a project based in Nepal. So in Nepal, do you, there is a school by Thangurimbuche. So it's only for underprivileged Himalayan children. 
So not an orphanage, but uh, they would give free food, free accommodations, and free school to kids from different part of the mountains, where their parents can't really take care of them. So that was in Bauda, in front of my house, and I knew that school. And someone had told me that the water is not good there because they have a lot of minerals, so kids are getting sick. So that's a water issues too. And then the organization we started was clean water for everyone. So it fit well. So we raised money. We do fundraising dinners. We sell tickets. We do lottery. We do all kinds of things to just, you know, make some money because eventually it comes down to money. So I remember it was $1,300. And then we were able to install a filtration system in that school. See, the thing about success, that it is so contagious. If you get a taste of it, you want to do it again. Right. So followed by that success, we wanted to uh, expand the horizon of the project. So the next project was um, to the Himalayan region of my hometown. And uh, we raised money. We did fundraising. No, we didn't live anywhere. We went to churches. We went to Lions Club. We went to a public meeting. We went, we organized dinner in our own school. And then we tell them our stories we as a student would like to help these people get safe drinking water. So if you could donate, that would be great. Uh, but there was always a strategy. Our strategy was that if you are donating me $10, when you donate me the money, that's only the first step. You should know where your money went and what kind of people were impacted by your money. So that was our strategy. So when we were raising money for the second time, we used the pictures and documentation of the first project. So... We got about $2,400 US dollars and I went to Nepal because I was going to go to Nepal anyway to visit. But I don't like to go just for the sake of traveling. If you have a purpose and then you travel, well, that's what I call like the real traveling, traveling with a purpose. Then it makes the whole uh, traveling experience more fun and more worth it. So I went there. We started a project. So we dug holes. We installed new pipes from the stream naturally spring uh, to the village it was five kilometers long and um, the village got like three new taps that's still working i uh, went last uh, three weeks ago it's still working and we got that done in 2400 so if you can if you really put up the work you can do now they get like 200,000 300,000 dollars for a project but they're not able to do any kind of work it's all bureaucratic but if you, you can, uh, our audience can check uh, clean drinking water for everyone, Mustang Nepal, because I documented. When did your, your interest in uh, environmental issues initiated or started? Very interesting story. When I was a kid, we used to watch a lot of National Geography tapes where, like, you know, the cheetah is running after the deer. So I was interested in natural resources management at first. So I went to Minnesota to do natural resource management. But then... I learned that the program they have is very narrow in a sense that only focus on natural resources that they have in Minnesota, which is useless to me. So then I switched to environmental science. Um, but again, it was different because the environmental science there was more catered for like a chemical side of it. Like the, you know, they check the toxicity of water level. They check the, you know, uh, pollutants in uh, food and stuff like that and work mostly in lab. But what I feel is my strong point is that I'm good with people. I want to work in the field. I don't want to work in a desk. I don't want to work in a lab. I want to go talk to people, learn about their problems and solve it. And I got a taste of it when I worked it in the water project. So even though that I 
didn't take any money. I did everything for free. That was the best thing I did. I mean, that's the most proud I'm. Um, but I learned that you know I can do this. I like doing it. I actually enjoy doing that. You did your four years of undergraduate as an international student. You are bound to now move on to the professional life. Uh, and so you you and as you mentioned, you wanted to pursue PhD. However, since you just applied to one one school, <laughs> that limited your uh, opportunity. But uh, and then you you decided to go into master. So. How was that decision uh, made? That was relatively easy because I had a scholarship, so I didn't have to think that much. But I think in masters, I didn't really pay attention, and I regret that now. But again, I learned, you know. So there's no point of regretting. But if I were to go back in time, I would definitely do it differently because the next step you take is really dependent on what step you take now. So in my masters, if I could go back, I would do some things differently. So I have easier right now. Like I would have, I don't have to apply eleven schools. Maybe I just apply five schools because what I did my masters will be relevant, will be helpful or not for my future. So it's about it's just generally in life as well. If you're taking steps, your second step will determine your third step, right? So. That's when I learned that I should be more serious or I should be more strategic. But uh, masters wasn't that bad; it was good. But then I went through some kind of depression, and I think that's something that we don't talk a lot about in our community because our understanding is that if someone is depressed, it's just they're lazy. That's what they say. If someone is sleeping all day, they think oh, very lazy, right? But a lot of times, it's not the laziness; it's the mental problem, right? They're going through depression, and nobody understands them. So, in our community, we don't really talk a lot about depression, mental health issues. But someone like yourself, like myself, who is really concerned about their life, we are bound to get depressed at times, right? But it's how we handle them. And I didn't tell anybody about that depression because I know people wouldn't understand. So we have to create an environment where I would feel. Comfortable sharing my experience, you know, not bottle up all the feelings, right? So I think it's really important because if you're a student and if you are working in a corporate or if you're anyone, most likely you will go through stressful times, and that's when we have to create a more safe environment for us to talk about those things openly. So I went through depression and I didn't tell anybody, and the way I knew it is because I would get anxious and I wouldn't want to focus on my work. I would do anything else but my work. So um, people see me. They look at me and I talk a lot. I smile a lot. They think, "Oh, what kind of problem he can have? He's fine, right?" But nobody really knows what's going behind that smile, you know. So I think that's one thing I learned that um, nobody, no matter who you are, you'll always go through tough times. That's how life is set up for. But you should have to. You should reach out to people and talk about issues. How how did you tackle this? At one point, it became too much. Like. I just couldn't bottle it up anymore, you know. So I went to talk to my professor, and I told her, "Yeah, you know, there is a certain stigma attached to that uh, depression word, right?" So I told her, "I think I'm depressed." I think I told her my symptoms, and she's like, "Oh yeah, you should tell us. Don't worry about it." She was very helpful. I was expecting her to, "Hey, you should do this in time. What are you doing?" But she was very understanding. We all go through that. Take your time. 
open up, you know, don't, you know, just focus on your work. Don't worry about us. We'll not, because when you're depressed, you're scared of things. Like you're scared of your parents. You're scared of your boss. Uh, but when you know that your boss is friendly and your parents are friendly and they understand what you're going through, then that automatically relieves you, you know, because when you're depressed, you don't think about future. You don't think about, uh, what is going to be next. You just think about the current situation. What are you doing and what you don't want to do? So it was my professor who helped me and she was very nice to me. She's like, it's okay. Take your time. No worries. And actually that's what reassured me and got back on my foot. I would suggest if, if someone is uh, going through these, I mean, if they're in their undergraduate, uh, they could seek help from counseling services. There are, there's great amount of help from counseling services that are out there. So you did your master's. You didn't put much effort into it, but you said it was quite easy. So, okay, in master's, for you to graduate, you either have to write a paper or you have to do a capstone project. A capstone project is something you work with an organization, right? So I did both. I should have just done one. Right? I did the capstone project. It was great. But my paper didn't come through because I was not consistent. I kept ch changing the topic. So that's one thing I learned in life, especially with the youngsters who wants to graduate undergrad. Just go on with one topic. Don't keep changing because if you keep changing, then that will stop you. That will uh, impede your progress. So that's what happened in my master's. Like uh, I kept changing topic. So I had to like, I would come up with a topic after two weeks I would change the topic. So all the work I've put for two weeks would be a would be waste. So it wasn't good. But um, but it was as I look back now in hindsight, I think I think it was relatively easier, and it could be a lot more productive had I put more work. But again, we all do mistakes, right? So I don't know. I think I could have done my masters differently if I had. So what, what I, would you change besides the capstone one? And the I would definitely pay more attention to. Um, things like uh, network, uh, social um, connections, workshop conferences, um, more than my classwork, because that's what's going to be very useful to you after you're done with school. Nobody really cares about your GPA, like in masters. It, nobody really cares if you have 4.0 or not. What they care about is what you're capable of. Okay, so what kind of potential you have. Your GPA doesn't really define what you can do. It just says how much, how hard you can you study. But if you're working in real life, you don't have to study. Yeah. You have to deal with people. You have to work in certain uh, environment. So I think I would try to spend more time reaching out to more people, more organization. In my case, go to more conferences, talk to more professors that I'm interested in, right? Because a lot of times you can just email professors and they will not reply you, trust me. But try again and again and again. Maybe they will after three, four times. But if you talk to them, they will know about you. They'll know that you are passionate, that you are trying so hard. So you might get a money from there and then he might be able to take you under his wings. But definitely just don't get stuck within four walls of the classroom. Just go out more. Hmm. Yes. So for someone, so you mentioned uh, going out to conferences and so forth. Uh, what advice do you have for, let's say, even a simple thing as, let's say, it might be simple for some people, but it might, it might be really hard. Let's say approaching a stranger, it might be a professor or not, uh, or someone who might be funding your uh, project. So how should one 
approach that person? Always do your homework. So most likely you want you don't you wouldn't want to approach a stranger in the street. Most likely you want to approach someone in a conference or in a workshop or in a networking session. So try to do your homework. Try to okay if you're going to a job fair. Try to see who is going to be in that job fair. Try to see what companies are represented in. And if you're interested in let's say New York Times, do a little bit of research about New York Times. And if you can do a little bit research about that person, now you have a phone, which means you have a shit load of information on your hand at your fingertips. So if I want to talk to you, it's a lot easier if I have something nice to say about you. Hey, Jigme, I've heard about your podcast and I read it. You're doing such a wonderful job. I would be very interested, you know, to be a part of your podcast. So my name is this, 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 right? As opposed to, I don't know you. It's like, how should I approach? So always do your homework. Whether you go for a job interview, even for a job interview, always do your homework. Always, you know, try to find something about that person and always prepare. No matter how prepared you think you are, it's never enough. So just be prepared. Take a deep breath and do your homework. Just talk to that people. If someone is there who you think is potentially going to going to be your future employer, talk to them. Most likely they will give you two minutes. So if you lose, you lose two minutes. But if it works out, then that will be the best two minutes of your life. So what are the few assumptions people make about masters? I'll tell you about PhD. Because masters and PhD, I didn't really work in between. I did work for a little bit. But then, like I said, I was depressed and I wanted to take time because my understanding was that once I get to PhD, I wouldn't have time for myself, which is which I was totally wrong. <laughs> so I came to New York, didn't do anything for eight months. And my brother and sister, they got really mad at me. It's like, you're in America, land of opportunity. At least do something while you're not doing anything. But what I was thinking was like, this is one life. I just want to do nothing. You know, I mean, I know the repercussions. I don't have money or whatever, but... God blessed me with these beautiful siblings, right? So I don't have to pay rent. I don't have that. So not anybody can do that. Like if I didn't have those, I would have to work to pay for my rent, to pay my food. So I basically didn't do anything. But the assumption people make, oh, you're going to do a PhD? That's like, what, 25th grade? Because that's how people talk, right? They don't know what PhD is, what master's is. So they're like, how many grade is that? Okay, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 25th. 25th grade? Damn, you must be making so much money after that. I'm like, well, I don't think so because PhD in that field don't make money. And then they would say, then why are you doing all this work for? And I would say, I want to be knowledgeable. I want to, you know, bring change in the society. And it's like, no money, no work. So basically, there's a lot of discouragement. right? And also, I don't blame them. The thing is, we had only one other uh, individual who has done PhD from Upper Mustang. So, they don't know. So, after your master's, you did your uh, PhD. Right. So, you're doing PhD right now. Yep. Can you dive deep into your PhD research? I think it would be very boring to talk what I am trying to do, but I will try to make it fun. So, like I said, I'm really interested in uh, uplifting our uh, Himalayan communities and one step at a time. I would be interested in all the Himalayan communities. But uh, in PhD, you have to be precise, very precise. 
So I am focusing on this small Himalayan region, like Upper Mustang. It has 27, 29 villages, but Nepal recently went through a systematic change, political change. It's more federal now. So now we have the central government, the province government, and the local government. So which means the local government has more authorities now. So in terms of problems, like I said, tourism is booming, and we have a good future if we manage that properly. But how do we manage it properly? For me, the approach I take is, Policies are the most important for anything. You need to have policies and then management, right? So I am not very satisfied with the tourism policies or the way it's managed in Upper Mustang. So you would have to, it's a restricted area because it's a forbidden kingdom. So it was only open to outer world in 1992 March. So now if you want to go to Mustang, you have to pay, if you're American, you have to pay 500 US dollars for the period of 10 days. Where did that money go? Because um, in 2018, we had like 3,999 uh, tourists. In 2017, we had like 4,125 tourists. So if all of them paid like $500, that's like 2.1 million US dollars. Where did that money go? That goes straight to the government, to the Homeland Department, to the Department of Immigration. And they promised that they would allocate 60% of that budget for local development in Upper Mustang, but we'd never see a penny of it. So people are mad. There are a lot of tensions. And Lomantang, this Upper Mustang is so blessed. It has caves and monasteries and landscape that you cannot see anywhere else in the world. Like it has preserved this Tibetan culture, tradition, because it's in Nepal's region, right? So, I mean, Dalai Lama, His Holiness himself said that if you only want to experience real Tibet, go to Mustang. People still wear baku. They still cook in cow dung at times. They still have, you know, what we used to have. Someone, I am reading this book um, about a professor, and I worked with her this summer. She wrote a book about Mustang. It's called Horses Like Lightning. And she said, beautifully, she said, if you go to Mustang, it makes you feel like 14th century was just last year. Right now, it is so close because it's still, but again, with globalization, modernization, things are changing. Now we have Wi-Fi. We have attached bathroom. We have Starbucks coffee. You know? We have espresso. So for me, I'm worried about the conservation part. How do we conserve those heritage? Because those things we can't make again. So conservation and development, can they go together? Because you're developing. You want development. You want good roads. You want good drinking water. But at the same time, there is pollution. You're destroying the uh, natural old look of it, you know. So it's a really deep issue. And a lot of people don't realize that. But again, to get to my research, what I'm doing is I'm focusing on tourism policies. Like what kind of policies we can design. So tourism can be managed well and it can be beneficial to locals. Right now, very few people are getting benefits of tourism. But what we want to do is make it beneficial for the majority of the local people. I'm interested in tourism policy, but also decision making. So when they make decision on certain policy, what are the factors they are concerned about? What are the factors they weigh? Uh, my concentration, even though it's in realm of social science, the concentration is complex adaptive system science. So it's all about complexity. The most intriguing thing that, that you said was uh, 
can conservation and development go together? And uh, I think when you said development, I, I, I think you're talking more about modernization and globalization rather than, yeah. I guess, because yeah. there, there might be other definitions of developing something. So in my area right now, what development means, means a lot of infrastructures, whether it's a building or road, bridges, electricity, drinking water, whatever it is, right? It's all about infrastructures. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't be paying as much attention to infrastructure, but to policies. You tell me, why are there no uh, driverless car in New York City? That's why policy is so important. Now, in America, in current days, we have a lot of debates on gun control, mm -hmm. abortion, mm -hmm. immigration. It's all about policies. Yeah. Man. yeah. One of the ways you can make a social change is to make changes in the laws and the policies. Absolutely. I think that, that goes a long way. And also, the, I think one of the main issues is that people do not know this policy. I think that's the problem. Yeah, right. If you ask any random person walking down the street in New York, uh, if you ask them, what is the abortion law in New York, in New York State or New York City? They don't know. Yeah. They don't know the details about it. Um, that's why it's so complicated and what makes it even more complicated. It's like not just the policy. It's like who is involved with the policies? Who are making policies? Who are they making the policies for? Who is going to enforce them? So if I want to change tourism policy, first of all, I, what I think I should do is I should just observe. You know, just observe and see what kind of policies would make sense. But then it's not me, a big shot, studying in America and going back to my hometown and telling them what to do. It's like I have to listen to them too because me, I'm as an outsider might see things differently than what it is actually inside. So communication is the key. So we have to communicate with local people. It's not like we should just listen what the hotel uh, entrepreneurs have to say. We also have to listen to livestock people, farmers. And also, like you said, a lot of people are not aware of the policies. So if you're making changes, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. You have to make them aware of it. You have to make them understand what kind of policies would benefit. But they can, again... Nobody knows about the future. You may think this is the best policy, but it might not be the best. Do you have any policies that you are going to change or are still observing? So the thing about PhD, like I said, it's different than master's and uh, undergrad in a sense that it's so deep. Like this is my second year going to the field. Last year, I went and interviewed local people. So the best way I could do is just not make a list because my I told my father that I'm going to go interview random people. And he said, oh, no, talk to him. He knows more. Talk to them. They know more. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to someone who knows more. I want to just talk to the most random sample. Because if I talk to someone who knows, then I'm being biased. So I talked to 116 people. I interviewed 116 people across 26 different villages. That was just to understand the local perspective. I'll have to analyze all that, go back to school, talk to my professor and see what's the next good step. But it's going to be the same issue, focusing on the same region, but see, because if I get some good insight, then you just follow that lead. It's just like solving a crime. You keep following leads. Do you watch CID? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, maybe you're looking for the weapon of murder, right? So if they you find a bullet, then you know it's uh, with a gun. So you reject the knife or hammer they're just like me i do interviews and if i get some insight i disregard all things and then i just follow what makes more sense 
when you interviewed the local people in your community did you learn something new that you didn't even think about oh yeah yeah totally a lot of a lot of stuff um um but also it, okay so when i interview you the answer you give me is dependent on many factors again it depends on how many kids you have it depends on what kind of stake do you have what kind of uh, profession are you involved in where does your background come from stuff like that so that's that's why it is so complex because every individual is different certain questions you get the similar answer and then what do you call in research time it's a saturation point mm -hmm. so you reach a saturation point means you're not getting any new answer you're right. always getting the same answer and yeah. that would be the case when it comes to the future of the village because everyone is going abroad so everyone agrees that in the near future it will be empty or close to empty because just think about it and it's all the youngsters that are going which means they will make babies abroad which means there will not be offsprings so if you think about the impact of out migration i don't know i don't have the right to say hey don't go abroad you know we need to stay in our place and i cannot do that because that's not right for me to say that i tell people that i will go back and get involved with politics i want to be in politics but they laugh at me oh you're not going to go back to nepal you're in america you will be here and like So I guess we can now jump into your future part. We have talked a lot about your childhood, uh, your adulthood, and your uh, present now. So let's talk a little bit about your future. So where do you see yourself in the next uh, decade or two? Okay. Um, so this is the most confusing question because I really don't know. But where I would like to be is um, I would like to have worked in a nonprofit organization and uh, create a good reputation for myself. Like I said, I don't want to talk much about this because, you know, people just talk shit to me. But I want to be in politics eventually. But what I learned is that there's no best way to be in politics. Like um, some people tell me, oh, if you want to be in politics, you have to be involved from the very grassroots level. And some tell me, oh, if you want to be in politics you would have to have some money have good reputation i want to do both but there's no way i can do both because if i want to get involved from the grassroots i would have to go back home right after my education and get involved in politics but i'm someone who believes that education is nothing if you don't have experience if you don't put into practical use so if i go back to nepal right after my phd i don't think that's much of use i don't have the financial means or you know the experience in the real world but if i wait here and then work here until i make some money then i would have missed that part and i cannot just start like it's a family celebration you know i need to be familiar so i think i what i would like to do is i would like to get involved in a non-profit organization uh, something like um, non-profit at international level That way I can have experience, make some money, and also get connected to my roots. You know, like maybe take project to Mustang or to other Himalayan region. Basically, just stay connected. Uh, a lot of times if you are doing PhD, uh, the most likely occupation for you would be a professor. But I don't want to do that. Uh, because if I'm a professor, I can learn a lot and produce a lot of knowledge. But that knowledge will not reach to the people that I wanted to reach to. I want my work to benefit my people, my hometown, my country. I don't want it to just stay in a library or in a Google Scholar.
what role do you play in your community? I think a lot of people have a lot of hopes from me uh, because I'm the only one who is studying at that level. And also because, like I said, I've done the project and I went to Nepal last year and I went this year too. So I'm keeping in touch with the community. It means I'm reminding them that I'm doing something um, I'm doing something for the community and I, you know, something big is going to happen, right? So I think they have a lot of expectations and a lot of people don't understand it, but there are a few people who understand it and they come talk to me and they're like, oh, we have a lot of expectations, you know, you're going to do something good. So I think at this point, I think my role is of an educator. Like I'm trying to educate people. Like I tell them, if you need money, don't come to me. But if you need some advice on how to educate your kids or, um, you know, you want to write a proposal, or you, then come to me. Like, uh, example, this in June when I was up there, the American ambassador made a visit in the monastery and the local school. They wanted to request money from the ambassador, ambassador. So they knew that I'm there and what I'm doing. So they asked me to write a proposal. So I did a proposal and they got money. You know, so if you need that kind of work, come to me. But if you need uh, money to go to France, don't come to me, right? So right now, I want them to realize what I'm doing and then come to me if they need help with things that I can help with, like um, with writing documents. Uh, but I think at this point, it's too early because I'm still a student and I'm like a full-time student. So I think my role is very murky at this point. What advice do you have for uh, younger generations in our community? I think I think you have to realize how blessed you are. Just look at your parents and talk to them, like how their childhood was, why they didn't go to school. Most likely your parents didn't go to school, most likely. And tell them, what would you do if you were in their shoes and they were in your shoes? Right, like because my parents tell me, oh, if we were, if you guys, if we had the same opportunity as you guys are having now, we'd have done so much. Blah 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 blah. So I think talk to your parents because our roots are unique. They've been in the mountains, like the most remote in the, almost, like one of the most remote. Now they're in the most busy. So talk about their journey, right? So I would say for young generation, go to school. I mean, you don't have to do master's or PhD, but at least get bachelor's because that's the minimum required for a good job these days. Also, I think uh, even if I do dishes right, with a PhD degree or without a PhD degree, I think it makes a difference. I think the way someone eats food, do dishes um, with education or without education, it's really different. The way you think, the way you behave. So I think uh, education is not going to be in uh, not going to be a waste. So at least do until bachelor's and then go from there. But like I said, we talked earlier how to get, how to be successful in undergrad and master's and in your profession. Follow all those tips. I mean, each individual is different. So take the advice or not, but at least always be on the run. Unfold all the students, like all the stones. Don't leave any stones unturned. Just, just be aware of the opportunities you are blessed with. I'm really glad I came here. Thank you for the time. Thank you. It is certainly clear that there are a lot more stories like Tashi's and we will try to cover that in the next episode. 
by bringing another professional from our community. We are very much excited to see Tashi move forward in his professional life and want to wish him luck for his future endeavors. I want to thank all the listeners if you have reached this far. That's our sixth episode of Behind the Peaks podcast. Please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to and don't forget to leave a review and rating. Until next time, stay professional.